Last time, if you remember, uh, taught on the account that's very well known of Balaam talking with the donkey or the donkey talking to him and uh, did a good job of outlining that text. So we pick up in chapter 23 or in uh, verse 41 of chapter 22 where Balaam has come to Moab, he's come to Balak, and Balak now expects him to speak a curse over Israel. So we'll go ahead and read uh, chapter 22, verses 41 through 23, verse 11. Or verse 12. It reads, And in the morning Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal, and from there he saw a fraction of the people. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bare height, and God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, From a ram Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die to the death of the upright and let my end be like his. And Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? So starting off, I'd like to recount some passages or some events that are good to help us understand this passage. First off, uh, this passage covers or involves Balak, the king of Moab. Uh, Moab was an ancient civilization, an ancient country, an ancient people. Does anyone know who was the ancestor, the forefather of the Moabites that was so important? someone related to Abraham. It was Lot, uh, Abraham's nephew, or Abram's nephew, was the forefather of the Moabites. If you remember back in Genesis 19, where Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, God rescues Lot out of uh, Sodom, and he's escaping with his daughters. Uh, his daughters, soon-to-be husbands, did not flee with him because they didn't believe him, and his wife. On their way out, though, his wife looks back, and turns into a pillar of salt because she disobeyed the command of the Lord's servants. So then you have this sad passage where there is no man for, with, or for which the daughters of Lot can procreate and can have children. So they decide to procreate with their father by getting him drunk. So it is from that account that Moab and Ben-Ami are born and those become the peoples of Moab and the peoples of the Ammonites. 
So that is who Moab is that Balak is now the king of. Now, even though Israel and Moab's ancestors or forefathers were close relatives, that doesn't mean that in Moses' day there's no tension between them. These aren't friendly countries uh, with each other, if you will. If you go back to the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, as the people are leaving Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea, they're recounting the works of the Lord in song. And in verse 14, Moses starts describing the reactions of the peoples. God has saved the people of Israel out of Egypt. What do the other nations around them think of this act? What, what are they perceiving of the Exodus? So in verse 14, he said, it reads, The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. And that's what we see in this passage. In Numbers chapter 22 and 23 and onward, we see that the leaders of Moab, Balak namely, is terrified of Israel. He's trembling with fear because he's seen probably, he's heard of the Exodus, but also he's seen their defeat of Sihon, their defeat of Og. If you read about Og, Og was a very tall person. He was one of the Rephaim, one of the mighty men. It said that his bed was 13 feet long thereabouts. So this is a man of giant stature. If you could defeat Og, you were someone to be reckoned with. Balak sees this, and he knows that if Israel is to conquer them or to come against them, he will lose unless he gets the curse from Balaam, as he believes. Now, just because there's that tension, there doesn't mean that it is Israel's intent to conquer them. Moab, because Lot was their forefather, God prohibited Israel from actually going into their land and conquering them. So if you look in Deuteronomy 2, 9, you don't have to turn there. But God commands Moses as they're resuming their journey to Canaan after they've uh, wandered through the wilderness. He says, do not harass Moab or contend with them. Because God had given them, he had given the people of Lot their land to dwell in. So it was not Israel's job to displace them like it was to conquer Sihon, Og, the uh, Amorites, and other peoples. He's not like, uh, Moab is not like the Philistines or the Amorites. God has not marked them for destruction. But Balak and the rest of Moab likely don't know this. They aren't intimately associated with the words of the Lord, so they don't know that they are safe. So they are still afraid. Now, with that said, let's, look a, let's take a brief look at the map that I handed out. I think it's good and something that's not super common to get acquainted with the geography of Israel and these ancient places, rivers, seas that are talked about. So just going back a bit, if you remember when the people are on the edge of the land of Canaan and Moses sends the spies to spy out the land and they bring back a report and say that it's an exceedingly good land, it's a land of milk and honey, but there are strong people there uh, so we can't go in. I've outlined the path that they took approximately. They scouted out the land of Canaan, which was the land on the east or on the west side of the Jordan River. They scouted out all that land and then they came back uh, to Kadesh where the people were and reported a bad report 
So then God punishes the people for their disobedience and they get sent back to the wilderness to wander until that generation dies. Well, then in Numbers, as we've been seeing, they are coming back to the land of Canaan. The generation that was rebellious has died off, so God is bringing them into the land that he promised them. But he takes them a different way than they went the first time. On the, fir the first time, they were going on the west side of the Dead Sea or the Jordan River. This time, they are starting on the east side. So you can see that they're going by Moab. They're going by the people, the Ammonites. They're going on the east side of the Jordan River. And this is what takes them into conflict with Moab, is because they are dwelling. I have that uh, place outlined as well. They are dwelling right next to Moab. It's said that they're in the plains of Moab opposite Jericho. So they are on the east side of the Jordan River waiting to go in uh, close to Jericho right on the edge of Moab's border. This is why Balak is so scared is because they are on his front doorstep. But again, they have made no acts of aggression towards them. There has been no formal conflict between them. It's just Balak's paranoia that causes him to seek a curse from Balaam. So I think that's good to know so we get a good idea of the geography. And it also is important as we go forward and we see the land that's given to Israel, some of them actually dwell on the other side of the Jordan River, on the east side, which was not necessarily the land of Canaan, but it was the land that some of the tribes were allowed to dwell in. So this is not a case, you can think of Isaiah 36, when Assyria is invading Jerusalem, they're invading every people around them, and then Sennacherib gets to Jerusalem, and he's just about to conquer it, and then God rescues them, because Hezekiah, in his anxiety and fear, is driven to pursue the Lord for his salvation. This is not what's happening to Moab. It's not as though Israel is coming against them and besieging them. Again, it's just his paranoia and his fear because God has struck fear into the hearts of the peoples. So again, it, it's true, the words that Moses saying when they were leaving Egypt, that trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. So then in our text, of course, uh, this follows the donkey, uh, the account with the donkey, and this describes Balaam's first oracle. So the first thing that we read is that Balak took, uh, takes Balaam and brings him up to Bamoth Baal, and from there he saw a fraction of the people. So it was apparently important that Balaam would see the people he was cursing. He couldn't just do it in a closed-off room. He had to actually see the people. So Balak arranges for them to go up to this mountain, this height, and they can see the people. And you get a scope just from this of the... Um, of the enormity of the people. Emily and I were just in the mountains in the Smokies recently, and from our cabin, we were on a mountain, and you could see the whole valley before you. And if you just think, if you were on a mountain and you couldn't even see the entirety of the people in front of you, how expansive that gathering of people must be. It says that they can just see a fraction of the people, again, pointing to the um, fruitfulness that God blessed them with and his in fact his fulfilling his promise to Abraham that his descendants would be numerous as the stars so after this uh, Balaam and Balak perform some rites some rituals they build seven altars 
and prepare seven bulls, seven rams, which were large animals. These were not, um, these were not doves or anything like that. These were large animals. These were something that you would sacrifice on big occasions, on important occasions. And their sacrificing these animals is their way of telling God, God, we have given you this. What are you going to give us in return? This is their way of asking God to curse the people. Which is why when Balaam goes to talk with the Lord, the first thing he says is, I have arranged the seven altars and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. So it's something that he is presenting to the Lord, asking for a curse. You can also note the wisdom, perhaps, of Balaam when he says, perhaps the Lord will come to meet me. You see that he has probably learned somewhat his lesson with the past account. He's learned that he is not the one in charge of this situation. It's not, he cannot summon God by any reliable means. It is God that he is uh, subservient to. So he will only receive a word from the Lord if God wills it. Then if you look forward, uh, you don't have to right now, but in Numbers 24, there's a third oracle where Balaam goes and speaks another word to Balak, and it has a special note in front of it before he speaks the words of the Lord, where it says that at this time, he doesn't go and search for omens as at other times. So what we know from that is that this first oracle and the second oracle to follow, when it says that he goes to a bare height, he is going to practice divination. He is going to seek a word from the Lord in mysticism in some ways, maybe looking at bones or fire or something like that. So in response to this, uh, the Lord does speak to Balaam. Now, the, uh, it is easy to read the passage and think that God is responding to these offerings. He's saying, yes, you've given these to me, so I will give you a word. That's not the case. These offerings are completely worthless. Uh, we, of course, know that offerings don't do anything, and God is not some God to be pleased by the blood of bulls and goats. And in fact, it is somewhat an act of judgment on Balaam that God speaks to him this way. Because he does not speak what Balaam is wanting. He does not speak what Balak is wanting. So it is a, an act of judgment in a way that Balaam would speak things displeasing to Balak and that he would be, again, reprimanded for it. But nevertheless, the Lord puts a word in Balaam's mouth and he says, go back to Balak and thus you shall speak. So Balaam goes back to Balak who's waiting by the altar and the princes that he brought with him and he speaks the oracle of the Lord. You can see by the arrangement in your Bibles that this is a poetic a series of verses. And you can also notice, because the repetition is very clear, each idea is repeated uh, twice, is repeated in a second line. So the first thing that he says, which is in the first part of verse 7, from a ram Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. So he's setting the context for this oracle. What has occasioned this? And what has occasioned it is that Balak has brought him. What is the desire for this oracle? Balak has asked him to curse Jacob for him. He's asked him uh, to curse Israel, of course, because he's so afraid of them. The next thing that he says 
is in verse 8, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? And then the next one is, uh, he talks about how he's able, how Jacob and Israel is able to be seen from far away. Again, as we saw earlier, they're at the top of a mountain and they can see them. This is not a small people that would be a speck on the map. This is uh, numerous people that you can't even see all of them. So again, we can see that God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham in one sense, and that he has given them so many descendants. You can be encouraged by that because, again, if you look back at Abraham and Sarai, or Sarah, this was not the logical way for things to go. You don't look at a man and his barren wife and say, this will be a great people. That's not how the way of nature would work. But it's by God's working, it's by his fulfilling his promise, that those two unlikeliest of people, Abraham, who is good as dead, would be the father of many nations, would be the father of a multitude of people as numerous as the stars or the sand. The odds do not matter to God. All things are possible for him. He is not uh, subservient to anything. He accomplishes that which he wills, regardless of how unlikely it looks to us. The last part of uh, Balaam's oracle he says, who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Again, this people is so numerous that if you took just a fourth of them, you couldn't number them. And then his last part is he makes a petition. He asks of God, let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Now, Dallas did a really good job last time when we looked at Numbers 22 of assessing Balaam. Is he someone that was a true servant of the Lord, or was he a pagan prophet? And the answer is that he's a pagan prophet, he's a false prophet, he's a diviner, uh, he's wicked. But people still, uh, for centuries past and still today, struggle with that. Uh, is he a saint or is he a sinner? Because it can be difficult to understand that. So we've already learned that he's a pagan prophet, but I think it helps us to see that as well by looking at, is this request of his answered? Does he get to die a good death? Does he die in peace, in the favor of the Lord? Does he die at the death of the upright? If you go to Numbers 31, we find the answer to that question. After this account, God commands Moses and the people to avenge Israel by going to war with Midian. Midian had offended them, they had offended the Lord, so God tells the people to go to war with them, the people do, they follow his command, and they kill all of the males, they kill all of the kings, and lastly, it makes a special point to say that they kill Balaam, the son of Baor. Balaam did not die the death of the upright. He died the death of an enemy of the Lord by the sword. Though he spoke the word of God rightly at this time, it was not out of his love for God, it was not out of his adherence to his word, it was out of his fear of being killed. Balaam had seen that his life was in God's hands. The angel, if it had been God's will, would have killed him without a second thought. It was only by God's working in the donkey that he did not die. So you see that Balaam has come to understand this. So he does speak the word of the Lord rightly, but it is not as though he's a saint. It is not as though he's a 
obedient servant of the Lord. So what has Balaam done? Has he cursed the people? Of course not. And Balak understands this. So he says, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. You can see the ignorance and the arrogance of Balak in that he actually thought this would work. He thought that if he got all these sacrifices together, he thought that if he got this really famous diviner, then Israel would actually be cursed. They would be struck with some pestilence. God would give them some wasting disease. He would send a tornado down to wipe them out. Balak actually believed that. So you get a glimpse into the totally depraved mind of man apart from God. They do not know God. They don't know anything about him. They perceive him completely wrongly. So Balak believes that he is nothing more than a tribal deity that we can appease with sacrifices and blood, and he will do what we want him to. That is not who God is. And we know that because we have his word, because we can look into it. We can read, this is not who God is. It was his will to bless Israel, and nothing would stand in his way. He couldn't be bribed or coerced out of that. God is faithful to fulfill his promises. He told the people of Israel that he would be faithful to them, and he is. Which makes a lot of sense of this, in that God is speaking to a foreign prophet, which is odd. We don't see that many times in Scripture. This is an account completely separated from Moses. He's not mentioned in this account. He's nowhere present in it. God is speaking to a foreign prophet, and we get an account of a foreign king. And the reason that God is doing this is because he goes to such lengths that not even a foreign king or a false prophet will curse Israel. He will not even allow that to happen. He will prevent it, and he will not uh, will it. So we see that God's sovereign dominion is on full display. Uh, people charge him as being just the God of the hills, not the God of the valleys. But he's the God of the hills and the valleys. People say that he's just the God of Israel. He doesn't have dominion over the other places of the world, over the other nations of the earth. That's not true. He has dominion in Israel. He has dominion in Moab. His will is done over all creation. He rules over all. So God protects Israel. He um, protects them through this account. And we can be comforted because this is the same as things are today. God's still in control over all things. He is still working in the hearts and minds of the world's leaders. Now that does not always end up in our physical well-being, but we know that all things work together for good. Uh, so we can have confidence in that, we can have confidence in God, we can have hope in Him and comfort uh, in His blessing. So with that, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Well, Lord, we are grateful for the disposition that you have towards us, that you look on us with love and with favor, not because of anything that we've done, but because of the merit of your Son. We are thankful that you have given us texts like this where we can reflect on your power, on your fierce protection of your people, and we are comforted that you protect us in this way that you will not allow anything to separate us from your Son, but you have purchased us forever 
never to be removed. We are thankful for that. We are thankful for your word and all that it does for us. We pray that you would sanctify us, that you would continue to draw us closer to you, and continue to help us understand who you are so we might speak of you more accurately to the world around us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.